Hi, I'm Tony Russo, and this is A Bagel Manifesto, where I share stories about coming to terms with belief, culture, and the profound sense of loss that nobody really cares about bagels anymore. This will come out on opening day 2022, and I want to share a baseball story with you. But first, I want to let you know that my audiobook is out and available everywhere you get audiobooks. If you're an Audible subscriber, it would be great if you chose Dragged Into the Light this month. Also, if you've already read the book and are still interested in more Sherry Schreiner stuff, please consider subscribing to my newsletter at abagelmanifesto.com. Every week or so, I write something about Sherry, and I put it there or I'll put it on my Medium page, which you can find at at Tony Russo on Medium. All right, let's get into it. The Masters of the Lingering Death, Faith, Brotherhood, and the New York Mets. It's October 10th, 1969. Three months ago, the New York Mets were 10 games out of first place. A year earlier, they had been one of the worst teams in baseball. Again. The next day, they would face one of the best teams in baseball for the start of a World Series they seemed destined to lose. Five days after that, they would be world champions. 359 days after that, I was born into a world where it ain't over till it's over wasn't just an aphorism. It was as true as gravity. Over the ensuing decades, any victory that wasn't against all odds and reason didn't seem worth celebrating. I want to talk about how descending into cynicism is the natural end of four decades of hoping against hope. I want my fidelity to mean something. I want my faith justified. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. Even if all those things are true, I don't know that it matters. I do know that it will never be a miracle when the Yankees win the World Series, but it has always been one when the Mets have. It's August 22nd, 2013, and I'm breathless, crouching in one of the darkened rows at the AMC 24 in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I had just snuck into the world's end, the final movie in what's often called the Cornetto Trilogy. Theaters all over the world are showing a triple feature with the previous two movies, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, running before the midnight premiere. I was supposed to meet Bobby, the oldest of my five younger brothers, at the theater, but had purchased tickets online and somehow chosen Pittsburgh rather than Cherry Hill. Instead of accepting the event manager's assurance that there wasn't a seat left to be had, I crashed the gates and hid in the dark. I was 42 years old. Shaun of the Dead was already underway and the ushers gave up after a cursory check, but both they and I knew I'd be ferreted out at the break. Bobby and I found one another in the dark, using text messaging and the occasional raised screen face. I brought him up to speed and we sat quietly through the rest of the zombie movie. Bobby is nearly three years younger than me, a successful executive at a massive company, and he carries himself that way. The thing is, though... He is as likely to ignore the rules as am I. He just doesn't look the part. He doesn't look innocent so much as he looks above whatever shenanigans we've been accused of. In August 2013, he was a 40-year-old father of three. It's October 25th, 1986. Actually, it probably was October 26th when this story takes place. The Mets, who were on the verge of being eliminated in Game 6 of the World Series, came from behind to tie the Red Sox and force the game into extra innings. The Sox scored two runs in the first half of the 10th and got the first two Mets out in the second half. Then, with two outs and nobody on, the Mets put together a series of base hits that scored a run and put a man on first and one on third. 
In that moment, a win felt inevitable, as if powered by the force of history and the declarative that had been repeated into meaninglessness over the last 15 years. You gotta believe. My father, Bobby, and I watched in the TV room. There was pepperoni and provolone and oil-cured olives, which are Super Bowl-level snacks in our house. The provolone was so sharp it burned to eat, but not much of it had been eaten since the commercial break. Met's hope is a sick hope. Like you're guilty and know you're caught, but haven't admitted it out loud to yourself yet on the off chance you're wrong for once. In the mid-1960s, a sports writer called the Mets the masters of the lingering death. What he was getting at was their ability to keep you caring even though everyone involved knew it was pointless. Lots of teams snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, but few did it with the Mets' ruthlessness or regularity. They trained me to hope against hope in a way that eventually would become a character flaw. When smarter and better people had the sense to quit, I stayed until whatever inevitable loss or disappointment was magnified to reveal my credulity. The fact is, there are times when you should quit, when it's appropriate to give up, and if you don't recognize that, you will always court heartache. But as with a gambler or a junkie, the highs are phenomenal. Unlike those types, though, for me, the highs and lows aren't dopamine or adrenaline-based. They're regret-based. I never want to have given up, to have lost faith in the cause. It's the kind of thing that might seem praiseworthy on the face of it, but I never learned where to point my faith, so where it points, it sticks long after it's justified. But I feel like that's what we all want, to have our faith justified, to be rewarded for our loyalty. As the movie ended and the lights came up, Bobby leaned over and handed me his ticket. For the price of a ticket, paid attendees were given a commemorative t-shirt and a lanyard. Bobby scooped up his free t-shirt and handed me the lanyard and went to call his children and say goodnight. Fifteen minutes later, he returned with an additional lanyard. I said to the lady at the door, is everyone supposed to have one of those? Because I didn't get one. And she said, sure, and handed it over, he told me. I moved two seats away, placing myself among three twenty-somethings who appeared to be saving a seat for someone who wasn't coming. The woman who had assured me there were no tickets left was in front of the room asking trivia questions and giving t-shirts for correct answers. I had a lanyard and a ticket. All I really was missing was the commemorative t-shirt. When I raised my hand to answer one of the questions, she was absolutely astounded. It took her maybe two or three seconds to register what was happening. She looked at me as if to say, are we really going to do this? I smiled at her, answered the question, and waited delivery of my prize. She moved purposefully up the aisle to where I was sitting and told me I'd have to show her my ticket. Brushing past Bobby, I handed it over and she turned from astonished to dumbfounded to practically enraged. She grabbed each of the hipsters I was sitting with, demanding to see their tickets. She ignored the tall, well-appointed man looking quietly at his phone at the end of the row. All the hipsters produced tickets. She told me she knew I didn't belong there or that she knew who I was or something. Frankly, I was barely breathing at the time and the adrenaline was making everything a little fuzzy. She stomped back to the front of the theater. As I mentioned earlier, mere wins are boring. The Red Sox brought in Bob Stanley to pitch to Mookie Wilson. Stanley hadn't given up any runs to the Mets at all in that series, but with the count 2-2, two and two, he threw a pitch in the dirt that skipped past the catcher and allowed Kevin Mitchell to score from third base. It was a tie game, and the winning run was in scoring position. All the Mets needed to win was one hit. Mookie Wilson was at bat for four of the longest minutes in my life. 
He fouled the ball off six times before hitting a dribbler to first base. I've watched the video replay of this at-bat a dozen or so times recently and still cannot believe that what happened next happened over the course of a little more than two seconds. As the ball rolled down the first base line, I heard my brother and father deflate to have hoped so hard to see the Mets win a World Series. To have been at all of those awful games and have watched all the mediocre teams and to have come this close and fail was too ghastly to consider. I was baffled. Something clearly was wrong. The Mets had won this game the second they had runners on the corners. The momentum of luck had anointed them. That they would go on to win the World Series, let alone Game 6, had been inevitable. Losing on a slow roller to the first baseman felt as likely as having the game end with an alien invasion. But there it was, happening right before my eyes. Out loud, I said, it can't end this way. Then, a little more than two seconds after Mookie Wilson made contact, the ball scooted through first baseman Bill Buckner's legs and into baseball history. The three of us embraced, one at a time and then all together before literally breaking into dance, moving in a circle, arm in arm, like witches around a boiling pot. Outside the theater, I apologized to Bobby for inviting him to a movie and then sitting with other people. I knew he must have been at least a little disappointed. Although I got the sense he'd enjoyed the movies and liked getting one over on the grown-ups with his older brother, he still doesn't love the chaos that tends to travel with me. He's always been good at dealing with it, but probably would have been just as happy to hang out with me rather than pretending we didn't know one another for nine hours. The waiting to get caught, the tension that came with it, wasn't pleasant, but from the moment Bobby had pressed his ticket into my hand, I knew I wouldn't be thrown out of the theater. I knew it even more certainly than I had known the Mets were going to win, mostly because I only really had hoped the Mets would win. You see, the Mets didn't reward my faith when they won, although it felt like that then and now. What makes them the masters of the lingering death is that they're not capable of rewarding people's faith. I mean, no sports team is, but the Mets are just really, really good at it. You can have all of the faith and all of the loyalty in the world and it will have zero effect on your team's play. It's knowing that they are eventually going to let you down and pretending that you don't know it that makes sports fans called the faithful as if they're religious people. You can hope that you'll be rewarded or that you'll get what you want. You can also hope so hard that it feels like you're making history happen, that you can see the preordination in every success. But at least hopes can be dashed or fulfilled. Faith keeps you moving whether it's warranted or not. Things can't reward faith. People can't reward faith. Right there in the way we use the word implies that faith is a thing unto itself. Faith is a reward. It allows us to continue to believe whatever we want, no matter what oppositional evidence piles up. I didn't have faith or confidence or even a belief that everything would be okay once Bobby handed me his ticket. It might be best to say that I had confirmation. I guess if I'm honest, I didn't know that we would get away with our improvised theater ruse either, but it was an utterly different feeling. I want to say that knowing he was willing to be dragged along again because he likes mischief and he loves his brother was the real win. The fact that I didn't happen to get caught sweetened it, and the fact that I got to flaunt it a little bit was really pleasant too. His engaging in the conspiracy, just the reaffirmation that we were in it together, that was the victory. 
I don't believe my brothers have my back any more than I believe that I have a head, any more than I believe that it ain't over till it's over. It's those things that are beyond faith, I think, that keep us grasping for larger connections, superstitiously trying to move history with our minds, betting against all odds, and, God help me, cheering on the Mets year after year. As a brief epilogue, I've been telling this Game 6 story for decades now, more so since my father died in 2015, because it was such a powerful, wonderful memory. As it turns out, it was also partially a false one. According to Bobby, the dancing and probably the snacks and other details that didn't make it into this telling happened when the Mets won Game 7 and officially became World Series champions. He told me this when I mentioned I'd be sharing this story. It doesn't matter to me how you tell it, he said. I just want to make sure we have our story straight. So, what do you think? Even though I've been the only one talking for a while, I'd love to get your impression. You can shoot me an email at bytonyrusso at gmail.com. If you want to attach a voice memo, I'd be happy to reply and comment on it. You can support me and the show by buying my book, Dragged Into the Light, Truthers, Reptilians, Super Soldiers, and Death Inside an Online Cult. It's available everywhere you get books. And as I said, the audio version's out there now too. You can also sign up for the newsletter at abagelmanifesto.com. Follow me on social media at ByTonyRusso on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show was written and produced by me, Tony Russo. Till next time, keep the faith. <laughs>